This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Dion O'Reilly. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. And today I'm going to be talking to Jamaica Baldwin, who is going to be coming to Bookshop Santa Cruz on July 18th at 7 o'clock. She is going to be reading with Francesca Bell. If you want to know more about that, go to hivepoetry.org and look on our events page. There's a registration link there. So we're excited about that. And I'm excited to talk to Jamaica today. Hello, Jamaica. Hi, Dion. It's lovely to be here. Lovely to have you. I like having a Santa Cruz person here on the hive. Let's see, did you grow up here or just live here or go to school here or what? All, all the above. Uh, yeah, I was basically born and raised, moved away in my mid 20s, so maybe 23, 24-ish. Um, yeah. So you went to so high school? All my, formative, all my formative years, high school. Um, I was a high school dropout. Um, but before that moment, I High Santa Cruz High, and uh, I think two different alternative schools before um, I realized it wasn't for me. So yeah, I really like having a high school dropout on the Hive. <laughs> I, you know, there's no shame here, and it was all part of the process. Um, well, you're you know, going to be meeting with Francesca Bell, who is also a high school dropout. Wonderful, wonderful. I like, look forward I, to meeting her. Yeah. That's the kind of representation we want here on the hive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, we need we need more. I mean, I feel like more and more people are <laughs> coming out for lack of a better word and um acknowledging that and putting it out there because uh, I don't think schools for everyone and I do think there is um the California public school system at the time that I was in school, which was in the 90s. Um, and I'm talking, you know, high school, not college level, that's a different thing, just wasn't that great. Um, and there were a lot of um, issues that I was up against in terms of, you know, being a, 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 a brown student in a predominantly white space. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know. Well, I was a high school teacher for 35 years, so... Mm -hmm. I totally get it. And yeah, Cruz yeah. High, well, when I was growing up, because I'm from, I grew up in Santa Cruz too. Okay. Uh, Santa Cruz High used to be a far more diverse school uh, in the 60s and 70s, but I don't mm. know what happened. It, um, well, the demographics of the town changed, I suppose, as it became more expensive to live here. But yeah. anyway, I, uh, beyond your having dropped out of high school, which I'm <laughs> serious, I do believe we need to represent more people who dropped out of high school or who did not get undergraduate degrees or who did mm -hmm. not get MFAs or PhDs. I think it's mm -hmm. nice to represent those people because they're poets too. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But beyond that, let's, let's take a look at your bio in this list of accolades. Jamaica Baldwin's debut collection, Bone Language, which we're going to be reading from today is going to be out very soon in what may uh june 15th june 15th right before you read by yes yes books her poetry has appeared in guernica world literature today the adroit journal indiana review poetry northwest and the missouri review among others 
She has received a Pushcart Prize in 2023, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a Rhino Poetry Editor's Prize, and a Glenna Luce Prairie Schooner Award. Her writing has been supported by Hedgebrook, Aspen Words, Story Knife, Furious Flower, and the Jack Straw Writers Program. Jamaica is currently the Associate Editor of Prairie Schooner at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she is pursuing a PhD in English with a focus on poetry and women's and gender studies. And like I said, she is originally from Santa Cruz, North <laughs> City. Um, okay, so usually when I have someone come on, I like to have them read a poem that they have been deeply influenced by or love that yeah. they want to share. And you chose a poem by Vivi Francis, who taught at the MFA at Pacific University for a while. Yes, yes, absolutely. I had Vivi as an advisor for half of a semester. Um, and in that brief period of time, I learned so much from her. Um, and I really connected to not only her poetic aesthetic, but just the way that she sort of um, mingles the interiority of who she is as a black woman in this country with uh, place because she's I think she's deeply a place poet in many ways um and so her book I believe it's her third book Forest Primeval was deeply influential for me when I was in the MFA program and since it's a book that I return to again and again um and I've selected her poem Altruism uh and I will read that is there anything about this poem we need to know before you jump in or you want to jump right in um, I don't, I think it pretty, it's pretty self-explanatory. I might say a few things about what I love about it after, um, but it, it, it's uh, self-contained and I don't th think it needs much introduction. Okay. Um, altru <laughs> altruism. Given the torch, given the wild turkey, given the reason, given the moment, given away, given another reason, given the window that frames the night's cool, given the shots and the stars and their black wraps, given that party, you know, the one with smoke and champagne and paintings you wanted to sink inside of, given the way you, given hunger, so many kinds of hunger, given the restaurants, the cafes, the bistros and diners where all the loud beauties flaunt their wares, where all the red-tipped fury comes in a tight dress, given that kind of sophistication, the kind that craves its own reflection and finds it, given, and it is a given, your desire as an abyss none can fill or fathom, given the received needs of men and women to be pleased and please, given the construction of a bird's nest of pain, a bundle of found objects and thin limbs. Give me something else. Give me the fruit I may leave my mark upon or flesh willing enough, but something, something besides lip and the language of loss. Give me the pleasure of knowing the giving matters to more than the receiver. 
And given such knowledge, give me faith or denial or truth enough to manage this truth such as it is. That was Jamaica Baldwin reading Altruism from Vivi Francis's book, Forest Primeval. This is Deanna Riley, and this is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 98.7 FM. Well, this is the first time I've heard the poem read aloud, and I really tuned into the music this time, mm -hmm. really created by the repetition that makes kind of an engine in the poem, given, given, mm -hmm. given, in mm -hmm. Afra. Um, but uh, what I underlined the first time I read this, which was some years ago, is um, this poem is about a strong desire on the part of the speaker yeah. to really tune in and take pleasure in giving. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's reflected in the title. And, and I wrote here that it was a sort of antidote to capitalism. That's what I wrote here. Mm -hmm. gift, mm -hmm. gift economy and anti-capitalist screed. That's what I wrote on this, although I wouldn't call it a screed, but it it's more of a, a pleading. Yeah, I like that. And um, and I agree with the rhythm. It's that um, the anaphora, the litany, the repetition and it's heavily about desire, which I think is one of the reasons I'm so attracted to it. Um, much of what I write is engaging desire on multiple levels. Um, and one of the lines that always just guts me is the um, in the second section where she says, uh, the beasters and diners where all the loud beauties flaunt their wares, where all that red tipped fury comes in a tight dress given that kind of sophistication that craves its own reflection. Um, there's this image of the speaker sort of being outside of whatever the moment is and looking in and there's this hunger to have what, this, what these other people have, but also a sort of appreciation that that's not the role that she fills, right? It's this sort of double double um double-edged desire because we get that turn at the end where she says i don't know if i want that give me something else um give me something that's more than this language of loss of what i don't in embody uh, and so much of the poems in this book are about um she's navigating beauty um beauty standards in this country and you know the western world in general um colorism you know, everything that's uh, white and, and thin. Um, and as a black woman, I just think she does a beautiful, a beautiful job of really um, just getting to the heart of what that space is that she occupies um, in that, in that poem and in others. Yeah. She's, what I wrote there on that part where you just read, given hunger, so many kinds of hunger, given the restaurants, the cafes, the bistros and diners, where all the loud beauties flaunt their wares, where all the red and theory comes in in tight dress. Yeah, I underline that. And I guess I was doing a sort of capitalist interpretation of this, but here this is beauty as a commodity. 
Mm-hmm. It, it never mm-hmm. really satisfies the mm-hmm. credit for mm-hmm. it. It never really satisfies. But turning it around and say, let me give something instead. Yeah. And beauty is an engine of capitalism, you know, in certain ways, the way that we are fed it. So, yeah, I think that's a good reading. Yeah. And fed the the desire for it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that we're just always chasing. Um, yeah. Give me the pleasure of knowing the giving matters to more than the receiver. Beautiful mm-hmm. poem. And I do think it's an excellent segue into your work. And I think that we can see it reflected in the first poem that we're going to read. I thought we'd start with the mess a body makes. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to read that. Um, This is actually the first poem in my book. um, And it was a later addition to the book, but it really, um, I think, ties it all together. Um, The mess a body makes. My mother offered me her history, licking the fat off each gristled story, her fingers shiny with the destruction of her youth. I followed carefully behind, consuming the world with unwritten poems sewed into the hem of my dress, a dull razor tucked beneath my tongue. At the clearing in the woods, I built a church out of the tender violence of words. I wallow at the altar and worship the mess a body makes barricaded inside its own hailstorm of hunger. I never learned how to pray, but perhaps the animal body is all I need in the end. Perhaps when my words fail, I will open my mouth wide only to close it again, to bite down hard one last time, to gnaw the bone, to lick the red language from my fingers glistening. That was Jamaica Baldwin reading The Mess a Body Makes, the first poem in her debut collection. Is is this your debut collection? Is this your first book? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And overwhelming. I know that must feel good. Um, The first poem from the first book, Bone Language from Yes Yes Books. Is it available for pre-order right now it is officially available for pre-order yes uh you can get it on the yes yes uh website praise god Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, yeah this this poem is also about hunger so Mm -hmm. like vibes um Mm -hmm. the animal body is all i need in the end what a great line that is to lick the red language from my fingers glistening. There's a certain pleasure in the hunger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the the need becomes almost religious. Yes. Yes. The Uh, The two main motifs here are hunger and, well, kind of religiosity or spirituality. Yeah, and also the uh, mother-daughter relationship, which is an important um, theme throughout the book. Um, And so, you know, I, growing up with a mother who was a recovering alcoholic, growing up with a mother who 
suffered from depression. Um, it there's a particular and a single mother. Um, there's a particular relationship that I, that you have a daughter has with a single mother, and I was trying to capture what it is to be the daughter of um, of a person who is at the time back then just very much larger than life, very much um, uh, extraordinary, and how much time you spend as a child sort of trying to find your space, you know, uh, in that relationship. And then what happens when you get older? And I think, I think um, I didn't find poetry or come into poetry until later in my life, but I think I was leaning into that creative space, even at a young age. And I was trying to capture some of that in this poem as well. Um, and just the, you know, kind of relating my hunger as a young person to my mother's um, hunger and desire that was very palpable. The well, time. the way you express that first, well, the first sentence of the poem that kind of me is jammed over almost four lines. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, which makes sense because it's kind of a complex idea. My mother offered me her history, licking the fat off each gristled story, her fingers shiny with the destruction of her youth. Mm -hmm. There's a feeling, a very ambivalent feeling that lends itself well to poetry of the daughter being intrigued, mm -hmm. but it's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's, yeah, I would say that's accurate. I don't know if I've ever um, used the word intrigued in writing about my mother, but I think that makes sense. You know, I mean, she was my world, but also a little bit dangerous in a way. Um if that makes any sense, you know? And so there's this, this in-between space that you're always occupying um, when you, when the person that is, uh, you know, in control of everything in your world is not necessarily reliable, right? And, and what that, how you navigate that um, as a kid, but then also as you get older and how that relationship shifts too. Uh, and I, you know, we were not religious in any stretch of the imagination but I find that there's something deep, deeply sort of mystical and spiritual in my relationship to my mother and my relationship to writing, and especially when I'm writing about her that I was trying to bring into the poem as well. Was she in 12-step programs? Oh, yeah, and still is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, <laughs> that brings a certain sophistication and spirituality and self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. self-awareness along with the destructiveness and right yeah. <clears throat> yeah 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 fascinating um I think my daughter would enjoy talking to you <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah there's I mean I you know I have a, I have a very fond fond memory actually of um I think the Nick is the Nickelodeon still around in San yeah, Francisco theater yeah, yeah. oh that makes I, me so happy yeah I I mean it's not closed I I know, I know the Del Mar is still going, but anyway, the Nickelodeon, go ahead, the movie. Yeah, um, oh, I just spent a lot of time, uh, you know, when I lived in Santa Cruz at that theater and I would see films all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, we had a little, you know, routine every once in a while where I would meet her at, uh, <laughs> probably gonna love me telling all of this, um, the Little Red Church that's across the street from, the Nickelodeon and she would be getting out of a meeting and we would meet up and grab coffee and go see a film 
at the Nickelodeon. So that that memory, um, just that little the downtown area of coffee shops and Nickelodeon and AA in relation to my mom is very was a big part of my life. Yeah. So cozy. That's such a cozy image. The red chair. <laughs> I know, right? Nickelodeon. Um, wow. I think that coming to terms with those feelings of ambivalence of of love and and danger and coming to terms with those it's such good fodder for poetry but also part of becoming an adult sure and sure. just Absolutely. you know becoming sane is understanding mm-hmm. those complexities of everyone around you but especially mm-hmm. Mother, especially your parents. Mm-hmm. The mess a body makes. What a great title, too. Well, okay. Um, why don't we move on? Certainly, like that poem. Why don't we move on and take a look at another poem? Another sure. poem with a great title The End of Sorrow is Not Happiness. I love that title. Thank you. Um, yeah. The end of sorrow is not happiness. I've gained many things since cancer, poetry, extra weight, a distrust of happiness, the way this country names it a pursuit, a destination most are never meant to reach. No matter how many shovels we break digging, there is always more earth, more history, more heft required to fail. Even if I could make my way through their labyrinth of promises without coming undone, I'm not sure I'd want to give up my sorrows. All my reckless patience wandering through untamed hallways. I've grown accustomed to their defiance, to the melancholy of women unbolting private alienations. I prefer this fracture of a home we built together without borders, without hustle. And the birds pay us no mind here, nor the trees, nor moss. So much endless, brilliant moss. The End of Sorrow is Not Happiness from the book Bone Language by Jamaica Baldwin. This is the Hive Poetry Collective, KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, where we talk to all kinds of poets and listen to all kinds of poetry. We also put on poetry events. Go to our website, hivepoetry.org, to see what we've got coming up. But what we do have coming up in July, July 18th at Bookshop Santa Cruz is my guest, Jamaica Baldwin, reading with the wonderful Francesca Bell. So go to our website, as I said, hivepoetry.org, go to the events page and register for this amazing event. They're always great. We get great poets. And it's just such a fun way to spend an evening and meet people. So is this a sonnet? Yes, it is a sonnet. uh, Well, you know, loose, (laughs) loose sonnet. Yes. It does kind of go through some sonnet like turns, though. I mean, the first sentence is one, two, three, four, five, six lines, which Mm -hmm. kind of is a sonnet like kind of beginning. 
segment there. I love, I've gained so, I've gained many things since cancer, poetry, extra weight, a distrust of happiness. So the three things that you name that little triad there is sublime poetry and then extra, extra weight, which is so ordinary. And then <laughs> trust of happiness, which is a little contrary. Mm -hmm. It's all very true. <laughs> um, yeah, I was diagnosed in 2013. 2013? I think so, something like that. Um, and I had been writing predominantly fiction up until that moment. Um, and I don't know if the distrust of happiness was strictly something that came since cancer, but it was since that experience that I've been able to articulate my feelings around happiness. Um, and I don't think I'd ever really uh, uh, thought about it in, in that exact way. Um, but what I'm really talking about in that poem is not, I think some people confuse this and think that I don't like happiness and that I'm not happy, which is not necessarily what I'm trying to convey, but more looking at um, happiness as a sort of state sanctioned thing that, that to find happiness, you must have and do and become certain things. And that I don't think that that pursuit is, I don't think it's uh, fitting for most people, but especially for people that are marginalized. Um, and so in my scholarly research, I've been engaging in this a little bit, but this was my my first attempt to write poetically about, about that idea. I don't know why I'm being such a communist today, but I uh, I kind of thought about this, that we've been sold this idea almost that happiness is a commodity, that it's a place mm -hmm. where we don't arrive. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I think I've only just figured out that it's not a place I'm going to arrive. Exactly. Yeah. Because there's nothing that you can really rely on except for change. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even when you die, that's just another change. I mean, I, th I think people think of death as kind of a rival or a kind yeah. of thing or something, but absolutely. It's all and much of this poem is about death, I think, in a, in a, you know, underneath the layers. I, I think, you know, the communist uh, bent on this is pretty appropriate. <laughs> maybe, I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll just say socialist. So it's not, to, so it's not to be so violent. Yeah. Um, no, no. But I think, I mean, I feel like happiness, like sadness, like any of the other emotions is just an emotion and it's something we can move in and out of, but it's not a state that you, that you um, reach and stay in forever. You know, I, I, I just think that idea is dangerous in many ways. Um, and I think in this poem, there's a way in which I'm saying I would rather choose, choose the alienation and choose the, the rupture if it means existing in community. And, you know, and I am, and for me, it, it does in a way. Um, so, yeah. You mean something about the, the sorrow and accepting the sorrow um, connects you with other people? Yes. Yeah, I do. Um, yes. So there's this uh, uh, feminist theorist, Sarah Ahmed, that I'm, you might be familiar with, who writes about happiness theory 
and uh, she talks about the way in which, you know, uh, I think she's specifically looking at immigrants or migrants. And if you come to this country or maybe any Western country and you are unwilling or unable to buy into this idea of happiness as something that you can achieve or reach if you follow certain things, um, then you become sort of, uh, you become or you feel sort of ostracized or it enhances the displacement, right? And I, and most of my friends, uh, most of the people in my community um, have that experience. And so whether you're an immigrant from another place, or if you're a woman who is ostracized, just being in your body in, in, in many moments in life, walking down the street, um, or if you're a person of color, a queer person, I mean, I think there are many ways in which um, that displacement uh, is preferable because it means sitting in solidarity with others, right? Um, uh, and yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, was trying to to talk a little bit about that in this poem. Hmm. It's a sort of a, a just a a radical acceptance of whatever's going on with you, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'd want to give up my sorrows. I mean, why should we if they're part of us? Exactly. Exactly. It kind of reminds me of that regret, anti lamentation by. Dorian Locke's regret nothing. Mm -hmm. And I like that you use the phrase radical acceptance because I think accepting who we are and where we are um, in this current stage and state and country and everything is, is kind of radical because we're not supposed to accept those. We're supposed to always be striving for something else, right? Um, so I, yeah, I like that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, recently, uh, I lost a couple of teeth. I lost a couple of front teeth um, through, you know, partly neglect as a child and then some other like just, you know, devastating stuff as I was growing up. And uh, um, I realized a prejudice that we have in this country, it kind of linked me with lots of other people, as you said, how I was, I was thinking like the last prejudice we've really grappled with in this country might be fat. Um, mm -hmm. I was thinking, mm -hmm. well, maybe it's toothlessness. That's another, it's mm -hmm. a prejudice. I mean, we really, we really make mm -hmm. nasty comments about people missing their teeth. And I'm like, well, well, why is that? Well, because it's mm -hmm. associated with being old and being poor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I just got uh, a grant. I, I mean, because it's like thousands of dollars to get your teeth replaced and the government doesn't take care of people. And then that mm -hmm. happens to people. And what do we do? We ostracize them and say mean things about them. Mm -hmm. So how do I get and we And we associate that if they're missing teeth then and they're not old, then they we have some sort of idea about their intelligence, I think, too. You know, I think that falls falls into play. But yeah. Um, yeah, my mom was recently going through that and, and we had a long conversation about that and teeth specifically. <laughs> oh, <laughs> patterns, patterns. Patterns, I know. Patterns I know. Here. Uh, well, anyway, I do love this sonnet and 
so much endless brilliant moss and the birds pay us no mind here not nor the trees nor moss so much endless brilliant moss beautiful sounds um and like all your poems they're very thinky poems they're very conceptual mm. <laughs> thinky <laughs> i've never heard that word that's great thinky uh, thinky yeah <laughs> okay um let us move on to Father Weaver. Sure. Um, yeah, so this poem, I, my father died in 2015 and I was, um, I had tried many times to write this poem or this kind of poem and failed every time. And I remember when I was at my MFA program at Pacific and I had Kwame Dawes as my <laughs> advisor and I tried to write a couple poems and he read them and said basically, you know, these are great um, in, in terms of, you know, catharsis and healing, you know, for you. And I'm glad you wrote them, but as a poem, not so much. <laughs> that was kind of him. Before you read it, before you read it, let me just say this is KSQD Santa Cruz 9.7 FM. This is Deanna Riley, and this is the Hive Poetry Collective, and we're talking to Jamaica Baldwin. Um, but that was kind of him to at least tell you that. Yeah, it was kind, and he was absolutely true. I, I mean, I needed more distance between me and the event um, to really kind of capture what I was trying to capture um, in the poem. Um, and I finally was successful maybe five, six years later. So this is Father Weaver. If he wasn't janitor, he'd be gravel artist. He'd be glitter farmer. He'd groove skate down Beach Hill to Isley Brothers. If he wasn't janitor, he'd be tennis racketeer, ocean tamer, cicada sequencer. He'd turn his knit cap upside down to catch fireflies, load them into pitching machine, point upwards and shoot stars into sky. If he hadn't been liquor undertaker, booze regulator, drunk gambling wish denier, he might have been daughter wrangler, fear whisperer, sweet lullaby impersonator. His underwater voice might have sung me to float and swell. If he hadn't been vodka foreman, he might have used strands of daughter hair to draw maps of blackness onto his back. I might have watched them stretch and curve and maze him into father quest, into secret daughter mission. I'd pack a flashlight and meals for the trip. I'd stretch and nimble get. I'd compass take, whistle and song and song. I'd path follow and loss get and around turn, around turn till I center reach and undead him. Oh God, I love this poem. That was Father Weaver from the book, which is about to come out in July, Bone Language by Jamaica Baldwin. Oh my gosh, there is some pretty, pretty clever wordsmithing in this poem. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think the first thing that just captured me is he groove skate down Beach Hill to Isley Brothers. I just, I just love that. <laughs> and Santa Cruz folks, we can really relate to that. 
groove skate down beach hill yeah and that was actually a story that i heard that he actually he used to skate and he's in santa cruz um down that hill that heads to the boardwalk um i never witnessed it but um so this, this poem is kind of filled with things that actually took place and then a lot of sort of magical thinking and imagining there's it's hard for me to exactly describe this but there's a sadness in this poem but of what this man was not but at Mm -hmm. the same time we're being given what he could have been it's sort of a wish fulfillment that's Mm -hmm. happened in the poem Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's accurate um so many of the poems I'd written about him prior to this and prior to him passing were filled with a lot of, you know, resentment and anger, you know, rightly so, but they were just very, just angry, not very nice portraits, um, not inaccurate, but not very kind. And I really wanted to do something that that was both an elegy and an ode but like with all my poems, especially the ones about my parents, I want them to be, to represent the, you know, how complicated we all are as humans. I don't want them to be all fluff and pretty and nice. And I don't want them to be just, so I was trying to sort of weave weave both of those, the reality and, and the wishful thinking. It's so amazing about poetry that, by complexifying our worldview and looking at people through many facets, we're working on the craft of our poetry. That's how you make a poem good. Mm-hmm. It's an element of craft to deepen the sophistication of your own thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they both, you know, I don't know what comes first, you know? (laughs) I think writing poetry can teach you how to deepen your understanding and to look at the world differently if you're really engaging in the practice. And then I think also understanding the world in a different way and seeing all of its complexities um, makes you a better poet, you know? And I think they both feed each other. They feed each other. I just want to go through something. (laughs) It's also kind of reminds me a little bit of when I taught ESL, the way Mm -hmm. my students have, I taught ESL to Southeast Asian refugees in Seattle for quite a while. And there was something about their syntax and the way they put their language together, which, and it, so it was not standard English, but it was Mm -hmm. just great. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sometimes I, I kind of feel like, um, you kind of do that with your syntax here. If he wasn't a janitor, he'd be tennis racketeer, ocean tamer, cicada sequencer. He'd turn his nip cap upside down to catch fire flies, load them into a pitching machine, point upwards and shoot stars into sky. It's just such unexpected language. He'd be magic. Yeah. Yeah, he really would. Daughter wrangler, daughter wrangler, fear whisperer, sweet lullaby impersonator, everything a daughter wants. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, I think so much about writing this poem was a way of sort of nourishing myself, you know, a way of um, saying, you know, yes, hey, you deserved all of these things as a young girl and you didn't get them, but you're, you know, you deal with words and imaginative thinking as a poet and you can, at least for a moment, try and create that and try and see what that would have looked like. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, this, sometimes when I'm teaching, I talk a lot about balancing light and dark. Mm -hmm. uh, that just like in visual art, we really need to master light and dark, you know, like yeah. like Rembrandt, Chiaroscuro, and you don't let them off the hook. <laughs> this, this poem has some darkness in it. If he hadn't been yeah. undertaker, booze regulator, drunk gambling, wish denier, oof. <laughs> Oof, drunk gambling, wish denier. Um, and such an attractive poem, these tercets, which actually feed into kind of the minor key of the poem, the off-balance feeling of a tercet. Because yeah. couplets just feel more based and quatrains, quatrains. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's the most stable you can get is a quatrain. But a tercet, you're always a little off-balance. Mm-hmm. I like that you said minor key. I've described um, my interest in art that I describe as like melancholy and full of longing as existing in the minor key. So I appreciate mm. I appreciate that you use that word. Yeah. Well, like you said, um, sadness is sadness and longing is what links us to each other. Mm -hmm. Like you know, the Buddha said, you know, it all begins with suffering. Um, but there's um, also the enlightenment and the beauty, which you, so you work hard to get it all in there and you do. Father Weaver, I'd pack a flashlight and meals for the trip. I'd stretch and nimble get. I'd compass take. Those are the ones that remind me of um, mm -hmm. my ESL students. I'd stretch and nimble get. I'd compass take. It's the syntax, the yeah. switching around of the subject and the verb and the object. Whistle and song and song. I'd path follow and lost get and around turn, around turn till I center reach and undead am. Oh my God, you bring him back from the dead. Father Weaver from Bone Language by Jamaica Baldwin. Get the book. All right. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> from Yes, Yes Books. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, yes. All right. Like a soft horn. I, I like your titles. Thank you. Soft horn, because that one, it could like, what kind of horn? You don't know. You like, you don't know if it's the horn on animal or horn like um, Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like a soft horn. You don't know if it's jazz or nature. All right, let's go ahead and hear like a soft horn. Sure. Um, like a soft horn. I saw through the evening a purple light. The light held the sound. I kept squinting at it, trying to hear its octaves, but all I heard were birds. And so I tried my wings, straightened my back the way one does when attempting good posture and did a little shimmy to loosen them. 
but they wouldn't budge. I could feel the constant pressure between my shoulder blades. It was painful to hear the birds so full of flight and song. But as I stood there, I thought about my mother's hunger all those years ago in college, eating the goat's liver pulled straight out of the animal's still warm body when few of the other students would touch it, not even to the dismay of the teacher, the men. Only two women lifted the organ to their mouths, one after the other, wiping blood from their chins, smiling at how creature they'd become. I want many things, and sometimes it's hard to hold all this desire in one body. If I had another body that could store my desire, a body that looked like me but didn't have the organs, muscles, and bones taking up all the space, perhaps this body would play a series of songs made up solely of the sounds of my future desire. A mixtape of sorts, but without titles or narrative arc. The sound would stand out the most would be a rustling of leaves, like the rustle squirrels make playing at the base of trees, but not exactly. There would be more depth to it, a wateriness, rustling water, yes, dry and wet, then a chiming somewhere in the distance, not like bell chimes, more like a soft horn, like Coltrane, but also full of silence, a horn chime full of silence. And listening to this mixtape of my desire that is to come, I would think, yes, this is a true thing. And my body that is not me would turn a blinding purple. Mm. You like purple. Um, in this poem, I do. <laughs> yes. You had a purple in another, was it purple moss? Do I? Was it purple moss in the other poem? No, it's brilliant moss. Sorry. Brilliant. It's okay. I saw it purple. That's so <laughs> weird. I thought, I thought it's purple moss. <laughs> okay. Um, like a soft horn. The way it begins, I'm reminded of, it reminds me of having synesthesia. Mm. I saw through the mm. evening a purple light. The light mm. held a sound. I kept squinting at it, trying to hear its octave. So yeah, the light as a sound is uh, kind of like synesthesia. Yeah. Which is, uh, let's see, in case people don't know, that's like when you see music or um, what are some other ways synesthesia can happen? Or, or hear colors, hear things in colors, and it's something like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. tell me. Um, I I don't usually ask this. I never ask this, but is is this real? Like a real thing? Students eating a goat's liver? Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> it is real actually. Um, uh, you know, this was the 70s in, I believe, I want to say Eugene, Oregon. And my mother, uh, this was before she had me, um, she was in college, her brief stint in college at that time. And she was taking this, I don't even know what the class was called, but it was some hippy-dippy kind of class that culminated in them 
I think killing a goat or something and they were supposed to do, you know, it was a whole ritual. And I think the teacher at the time was um, talking about the ritualistic practices and the importance of the organs and, and, and all of that stuff. Um, and I think was encouraging people to, 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 to engage and nobody did except for two people, my mom being one of them. So it was a story she told me and uh, it just stuck in my mind. Wow. I feel like all of a sudden I feel like I haven't really lived. <laughs> um, I love the simple line. I want many things. And sometimes it's hard to hold all this desire in one body. And then the next stanza, if I had another body that could store my desire, a body that looked like me, but didn't have the organs, muscles, and bones taking up all that space, perhaps this body would play a series of songs made up solely of the sounds of my future desire, a mixtape of sort, but without titles or narrative arc. It's very science fiction. It's almost like <laughs> creating a body that's like an external hard drive. Yeah. For your yeah. extra needs. It feels that way sometimes. I don't know about you, but um, you know, when when I do uh, have a moment and I'm thinking about my desire or writing a poem, I think there's so much busyness, there's so much brainness, or as you said earlier, thinkiness that goes on in the body. And if I had a body that was strictly focused on the desire, what would that look like? You know, what would it be? Um, uh, I mean, this poem is doing many things, but that I, that's in this conversation that that's coming to me. Yeah. Well, there are so many things that one would like to do in life. Um, that one can't do, or in my case, often one shouldn't do. It would kind of be nice to just have another <laughs> body that could just go out there and take care of business while you remained home, innocent, with an alibi. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a kind of emptiness in this and almost like an om, an om, like a meditative om. Rustling water, yes, dry and wet, then a chiming somewhere in the distance, not like bell chimes, more like a soft horn, like Coltrane, but also full of silence, a horn chime full of silence. Yeah, this is definitely, I think, the most meditative poem in the book. Um, and it was meditative, not like I was meditating, but the process of writing it was very um, kind of stream of conscious, uh, stream of consciousness. And yeah, yeah. So it's de it definitely diverts a little bit from the majority of the poems I write, uh, but it, in terms of thematically, it really um, helped tie in a lot of the poems that are in the in the manuscript. Well, it is about desire. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and also about this idea of a sound somehow satisfying or representing the essence of, of the speaker. And listening to this mixtape of my desire that is that is to come, I would think, yes, this is a true thing. Yeah. I mean, that is a kind of a poetic idea that a sound, which is the lyric, uh, defines the the, yeah. the the maker of the sound. Yeah. And that's an interesting lyric moment at the end. And my body that is not me would turn a blinding purple. purple. It's sort of a psychedelic lyric moment. <laughs> I, like, I like that. I'll, yeah. Yeah. A little of seventies. Um, uh... <laughs> well, I'm a child of the seventies. Um, uh, yeah, born in seventy six. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Good times. Mm -hmm. uh, well, before we move on to another poem, would you like to talk about some of your current projects and what you're up to right now? I, I mean, I imagine you're planning all the ways you can bring your little baby into the world. Your bone yeah, that, that's the most uh, immediate project. Um, I mean, I am working on more poems, but uh, nothing that has uh, a concrete description at this at this moment. Um, a lot of it is sort of engaging the ideas of melancholy and longing that my current book is leading into, but doing it more explicitly and incorporating more more research. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I'm really just focused on getting my book out to the world and doing readings and doing as much touring as I can. Um, but I'm also finishing up a PhD program. <laughs> so before we, we started recording, I mentioned that I'm finishing my dissertation. Um, and then I also uh, recently accepted a tenure track assistant professorship at Ithaca College in New York. So I'll be moving this summer as well. So it's uh, a lot of change, um, which seems to happen in my life this way, where there's no change for a long time, and then suddenly everything changes. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of busyness, um, good busyness that I'm focused on, um, right now. Yeah. Congratulations on that, that job. That sounds Thank great. You. How does it feel to have a book coming out in the world? How did it feel to get it accepted? Oh, it was so exciting. Um, I was actually at my good friend Nancy's house who lives in Santa Cruz and, um, this was two years ago. Gosh yeah two years ago in may and i was visiting and i was staying with her and i get the email from yes yes that my book was accepted and it was just really nice to be with another poet friend at that moment you know um and we opened a bottle of wine and toasted and it was very lovely um and now two years later uh her book got picked up by them which is very uh, serendipitous, I guess. Um, that's Nancy. Yeah. That's Nancy Miller Gomez, uh, yes. Santa Cruz poet. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. No, it was a wonderful moment when I got it accepted, and then it's a whole process in between acceptance and publication. There's so much that goes on, um, and so to have it finally out in the world or coming out very soon is 
exciting and also a bit overwhelming. I um, We finally uh, posted the cover of the book last week um, and the pre-order link. And I was surprisingly overwhelmed. You know, it's not the book, the book's not out there yet, but something about just that one act that's getting us, it's kind of the last step before the book publication. And, and it was, it was a tad emotional, um, yeah. Did you ever think that you would uh, write a book and get it published? When I was living in Santa Cruz, absolutely not. <laughs> No, my mother was a writer, uh, put herself through grad school in fiction, master's program. And I never, I just grew up watching her, watching what the writing life looked like. And it didn't look like anything I wanted to do. I was more into um, the performing arts. So I liked to sing and dance and all of that stuff. And writing just seems so isolating and lonely. Um, so I really kind of steered away from it intentionally. And then... You know, when I got older, it just it found me. So do you feel yeah. still feel like it's lonely and isolating? At times, yes. Yeah. I mean, it is the 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 writing, the doing the work of creating your poems is by its very nature, you're alone, you know, unless you happen to be doing some sort of collaborative thing with someone. Um, and even that most times the people that are collaborating on a book are doing their own parts separately. Uh, and then the part that is less lonesome and really joyous is when you have something like a book and you get to bring it out in the world and get to go around and meet people and, and talk to people. And that's really lovely. So yeah, I don't think the loneliness and the isolation hasn't disappeared, but the what poetry gives me kind of outweighs that. Mm -hmm. Well, there's definitely outweighs that. Yeah. Workshopping and mm -hmm you really get to connect with people and people get to know you right away. You don't yeah. have, there's a, there's very little you, you, that you don't know about a person when you're really listening to their poetry and you, absolutely, you, yeah. and their writing, it, it really helps you get to know people very quickly. Well, and being a poet in this age of internet makes, you know, you kind of have community, even if you never leave your house. You know, there's a way, if you want it, there's a way of connecting with others um, and building an online community, which is, is, is very nice. Which we have done today because this is going to be posted all over the place. Uh, this is going to be a podcast and, of course, a radio show. And it's been so amazing getting to know you. Jamaica Baldwin, ladies and gentlemen, check out her new book, Bone Language, come to her reading that is going to be happening in Santa Cruz on, what is it? July 18th, right? July 18th. Yes. Bookshop Santa Cruz. <clears throat> go to hivepoetry.org, go to the events page to register. This has been another episode of the Hive Poetry Collective. Thank you, Jamaica. Thank you, Dion. This has been such a pleasure and it's lovely talking to somebody from my hometown about poetry. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Thanks for tuning in.